Judge, I'm Leonard Lopate. Walter Pincus, the Pulitzer Prize-winning former national security reporter at The Washington Post, has written a shocking account of the destruction caused by atomic bomb testing in the South Pacific's Marshall Islands from 1946 to 1958. 67 nuclear tests that decimated five islands and 29 coral atolls with a land area about the size of Washington, D.C. Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders is published by Diversion Books, and it brings Walter Pincus to our show now. Um, how many people lived in the, uh, the area? Well, in the Marshalls, totally about uh, at the time of the Bravo bomb, about 15,000. There were only 82 Marshallese on the uh, atoll of Rondelap when the fallout came down. What were they they told about why they were being displaced from the only homes that they had known? Well, the irony of it is uh, back in 1946, we did our first test in Bikini. They were actually removed from the island because at that point, uh, the original Manhattan Project people didn't know what the reaction would be or what fallout would take place from those original tests. Ironically, to save money during the Eisenhower administration, uh, when they blew up this 15 megaton test bomb, uh, which was almost a thousand times bigger than Hiroshima, to save money, they didn't move them off Rondelab. Wow. Uh, We're talking about 167 residents of Bikini Atoll? 167 uh, were on an atoll further out, uh, actually 300 miles out. Mm-hmm. There were only 82 on uh, the atoll of Rondelab, which was 120 miles away from where the explosion took place. But is that far enough away for them to escape the fallout from an atomic blast? Well, uh, not a blast of this size, a blast that was close to the ground because it picked up a whole coral island uh, and it went into the stratosphere where we had no experience of where the winds went. And the winds changed direction at different heights. And so the fallout uh, from, in other words, the radioactive particles, mainly of coral, um, soil, and water, uh, blew uh, in the direction Rondelap at the height it went, and then even went further to the atoll of Uteric, which did have 167 people. Well, the adults and children living on Rondelap and uh, Uteric atolls were exposed to radioactive ash and contaminated drinking water in the aftermath of the Castle Bravo test. Um, Didn't they go on to suffer low white blood cell counts, uh, thyroid tumors, and numerous cancers? It, all that's true. The, they didn't know what was happening. It came down, as some of them described it, like snow. Their leader had said, we will go believing that everything is in the hands of God. And didn't they expect to return to their atoll in a few months? Uh, they did. They were told that they could return uh, after the tests were completed. Well, it's been 76 years since. Are the islands still too contaminated for anybody to live there? Well, it's a different, it depends. The Rongola people actually went back after there was sort of superficial scraping of the land on the one island in the atoll where they lived. Went back three years later in 1957. But what happened is in the succeeding years, 
They ate the food that they raised there. They ate the fish that were in the water. And it turns out the radioactivity is taken up, for example, by the coconut trees. So if you ate the coconut or drank the coconut milk, you were absorbing radioactive elements in your body. And so in 1985, when they, they moved back off Rongelap, and as of today, nobody lives there. The, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had already proved the power of atomic weapons. Why were these tests of A-bombs deemed necessary? Uh, well, in the first place, uh, those were atomic bombs, and these we had moved to thermonuclear bombs, mm. hydrogen bombs. Well, we were already so doing they had the a different bomb. makeup, and they were more powerful. A thousand times more powerful than Hiroshima. Oh, was there the any bomb? Go ahead. The, the Bravo bomb was one thousand times more powerful. Was there any tactical justification for the creation of such a powerful weapon? At the time, uh, we were in an arms race with the Russians, Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so in 1949, the Soviet Union blew up their first atomic bomb and their way to a thermonuclear sort of H-bomb. So it was a competition. Uh, we had just gone through the Korean War, where the Chinese intervened, and so uh, the nuclear arms race was on. Now, were the bombs too powerful to be tested in the American desert? That's why they were tested in the Pacific. There was uh, some fallout in the tests in Nevada, and they were fearful at much lower yields, but they were fearful about fallout in the U.S. And so uh, we moved tests of thermonuclear weapons out to the Pacific. Why was it necessary to conduct so many tests, 67 over a 12-year period? Uh, well, people I mean, did we prove that it days. worked? It, people forget that in the post-World War II world, the Cold War, the, the Cold War, but it was sort of around the world, there also was a competition inside the American military uh, for who was going to get a nuclear weapon, which was the new main fighting weapon. So the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force each wanted weapons of their own. So there were this many tests because we were building a variety of weapons from handheld uh, sort of bazooka-like called the Davy Crockett, which went to the Army. We had Army uh, nuclear demolition mines for the Army engineers. The Air Force had... Uh, the various types of bombs of various detonations. Uh, the Navy had, believe it or not, nuclear armed submarines. It, it was a, a sort of a variety of let's make our own weapon. And were the bombs all that different? The warheads for missiles are different. They're different sizes. I mean, you had to have a much smaller, lower-yield weapon for the so-called Davy Crockett. They had a, a different kind of warhead. Uh, we even had a nuclear anti-air weapon. Theoretically, you go after mass Russian bombers that were coming toward the U.S. Um, so you, they were different sizes and could do different things. You've said, I'm quoting you, people today have forgotten if they ever knew what a nuclear weapon can do. I think that's true. Uh, when I was 
post-world. I mean, I, I say it, I'm now 89. But if you were in the, the 1950s, 60s, prior to the atmospheric test ban, we grew up when they blew off a test either in the U.S., in the Pacific, or in Russia. First of all, it was a front page story with big pictures. And then there were stories every day following the nuclear fallout cloud as it traveled around the world. And as a child, uh, the thing I remember best was uh, because I drank milk was stories about how cows, particularly in Denmark, were um, serving up radioactivity, strontium-90, in their milk because they're eating from grass that it had fallout from the tests, either the Russian tests or the American tests. Um, and these are things I never forgot. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Walter Pincus, who has written a book called Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders, published by Diversion Books. Tess Abel, the, the first bomb of Operation Crossroads, was detonated above a flotilla of captured and obsolete ships that were anchored in Bikini Lagoon. And um, th didn't they put animals on board to measure the bomb's effect on living creatures? They, they put a variety of animals. Pigs, because their skin is sort of like America, have a human skin. Mm -hmm. uh, goats, because their internals are very much like human beings. Uh, rats. Ironically, or not ironically, oh, rats and mice, but they had been experimenting with them uh, back in, in Los Alamos nuclear labs and Livermore. Uh, they didn't have put dogs out because the ASPCA had uh, told them not to. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the pigs were even dressed in military uniforms with their hair trimmed to human length and their skin smeared with suntan lotion. So they, they wanted to simulate a ship's crew? Right. I mean, although, ironically, some uh, prisoners in prisons volunteer to stay on the ships. People, prison, um, including they, a prisoner serving a life sentence at San Quentin. Right. Uh, but this was the scientific way to, to get as much information as they could from the tests that were really designed to see whether uh, U.S. Navy ships could survive a nuclear attack. So 90 people actually offered to uh, volunteer to be test subjects, and the Pentagon turned them down. But did the right. Pentagon have any clue as to how destructive the bombs actually were? They, they didn't, and they were very surprised, uh, mostly by the second test. The first test, uh, the bomb missed the target by almost a mile. Uh, it was an air a, a detonation in the air. Uh, but the second test, the Baker test at Crossroads, in 1946 was done underwater and it created a huge geyser of radioactive water that fell down on the ships and the Navy and the scientists even were totally unprepared for how to deal uh, with radioactive fallout. And the fact that most people don't understand today it's part of the reason I wrote the book is because they think when they hear about a nuclear weapon, they think about Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and as deadly as they both were uh, in killing people at the moment, 
They were both detonated above 15,000, 1,500 feet above the ground so that the fireball, the, the radioactive explosive material, the fireball didn't hit the ground and therefore the only fallout was from the minute parts of the bomb itself. If the fireball had hit the ground as it did in the Bravo test, it put radioactivity into the water, the soil, and the coral. At the Baker test, just the water came down on the target ships and for almost a year, the Navy tried different ways to remove the radioactivity from those ships, target ships. And in the end, every one of them had to be sunk because they couldn't be cleaned. Well, those animals that were in the test able test, um, uh, some of them, well, uh, a pig 311. A right. six-month-old Poland China sow became an instant media celebrity after she'd escaped from the officer's toilet of the Japanese cruiser Sakawa before it sank half a mile away. But she was found swimming in the lagoon and donated to the Smithsonian Zoo after she recovered from radiation sickness. On the other hand, weren't only 28 of the 5,500 animals that had been in that test still alive three years after the test? Right. No, they died from various things and, and uh, made people realize that uh, radioactivity and fallout uh, are long-term problems. It's not just instant death. It is what happens in weeks and months. And as the Bravo test exposed, Pete Marshallese showed, Years later, the impact of uh, exposure to radiation has an effect on your health. Well, some people were concerned that there could be all sorts of other damage. Didn't the Navy promise that the bombs wouldn't blow a hole in the bottom of the ocean and cause the water to drain out or to destroy gravity? There was, prior to uh, Crossroads, are the first tests we did after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There were all sorts of fears by people about what would happen uh, if you tested the weapons, particularly if you tested underwater. Uh, and, and what happened is because the first bomb, the uh, ABLE test, missed the target, Newspaper people, press people, 30 miles away, watching it, uh, played it played down the danger from nuclear weapons. Didn't because all these terrorist things didn't happen. How important was it for people to witness the tests? For example. Harold Agnew, who was a director of the Los Alamos Nuclear Weapons Lab then, had been on the chase plane that followed the Enola Gator Hiroshima, and he observed many of the nuclear weapons tests. Um, did Was he doing it to learn anything, or was there a PR element to all of this? Uh, Agnew's job in the follow plane at uh, Hiroshima was really a photograph uh, what happened. Uh, Harold Agnew later became head of Los Alamos. And uh, in, in my reporting, I used to go to Los Alamos once a year for about five years. And uh, Dr. Agnew was one of my major teachers about how dangerous uh, nuclear weapons could be and how dangerous fallout could be. Didn't he believe that world leaders should be periodically required to witness the detonation of a hydrogen bomb to remind them of what would happen if things got out of hand? It 
it clearly was a, a feeling he had through his lifetime. It, it, and in fact, many people who were close to nuclear weapons um, are the ones least likely to want them used. And even military men uh, who've had responsibility for their weapons uh, turn out to be anti-new when they're out of the service. Did any world leaders take uh, Harold Agnew up on his offer? No. In fact, uh, I've written since that um, every year we have a variety of both tabletop and computer games, war games, that the military play. And uh, since um, Ronald Reagan, uh, they have asked presidents to take part uh, because in the end, they have to make the decision to use a weapon. And the only president since Ronald Reagan who agreed to take part in exercise was Jimmy Carter, who of course was trained in the Navy uh, on nuclear submarines. So he had had a background, but every other president has turned down participation, uh, supposedly because they don't want to be faced with the decision even in an exercise. Well, didn't the one Soviet observer to attest, a geologist and a KGB spy, point to the mushroom cloud and say, not so much? Uh, they were caught up. They were on the ship, um, again, that was so far away from the able shots that, uh, that the whole thing appeared not to be as dangerous as they thought. But as it turned out, uh, they also took part in the first tests that the Soviets had, and their testing uh, techniques replicated what we did. There are many people who are concerned when Vladimir Putin kind of hinted that uh, there could be nuclear weapons used if this uh, this new war got out of hand. It's um, I've actually written a column for the Cipher Brief that's out today uh, that makes the argument that Putin has by design put nuclear weapons to a core what I call a coercive use that verbally threatening to use nuclear weapons is a new way to use them. Um, although we've done it ourselves once or twice in the past, but he's done it publicly and it's clearly had an effect. And the thrust of the column I wrote in the cipher brief is that the Biden administration has to respond by verbally talking about how we would respond would um, Putin actually use a nuclear weapon. Friends uh, have uh, talked about it with me, and um, I guess we agree that there are three cities that would be vulnerable if it ever got to that point. You live in Washington, that would be one of them. I live in, Wa in New York, that would be another. And maybe Los Angeles would be the third. It's, it is, um, in my mind, Putin's invasion of Ukraine conventionally was bad enough. I made the mistake thinking he wouldn't do it because it obviously turned into a bloody World War II type of war because even our conventional, but worse, because even our conventional weapons today are much worse than what we had back in the 40s. Um, there are so many other ways a country 
can upset another country or attack it, cyber being one, without the killing of people the way uh, the Russians are doing it today. Well, we live in a very dangerous world so far. I guess we were very aware of just how terrible it would be to engage in a nuclear war again, and yet it's still a possibility. Um, and reading your book, of course, reminds us of just how terrible it would all be. Um, we will continue our conversation here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, Enjoying my conversation with Walter Pincus. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders. All you have to do is go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you so much. And as I just said, the book we are discussing is called Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders, published by Diversion Books. Um, The airburst bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had killed by blast, heat, and prompt radiation. Uh, But uh, what about here? Well, this is one of my main points, and that is uh, because uh, the original scientists who built the bomb didn't know what would happen if the fireball hit the ground and you had fallout. They detonated them high, and as terrible as the results were, people who weren't killed and buildings that were left standing, and the area itself could be rebuilt. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been rebuilt. Excuse me for interrupting, but didn't the gamma ray burst uh, from the, the those original bombs? disrupt the body's ability to replace red and white blood cells. So even then, we were aware of long-term effects, weren't we? What do we want to know? For the people who were directly below the detonation, but it didn't reach the ground and affect buildings the way fallout would if they were used again hit the ground in a city where you couldn't clean it up a bomb a bomb any nuclear weapon used now aimed at targets on the ground or below ground would cause a kind of fallout that you couldn't remove what you have to do is Instead of thinking Hiroshima and Nagasaki, think Chernobyl, which was sort of the equivalent of a seven or eight kiloton uh, weapon, which is called low yield now. But nobody lives in a 20 diameter mile, 40 really, area around where the Chernobyl explosion took place a city called Pripyat 
which had 50,000 people, stands uninhabited right now, 38 years after the explosion. That's the situation that we would face for a weapon used now. And weren't people affected from the Chernobyl explosion as far north as Sweden and Norway and Finland? They, they received radiation, same kind of effects uh, were seen uh, that you saw in the Marshall Islands. Hmm. Just not the same density. So what the U.S. wanted to know was after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as I understand it, was the short and long-term effects of radioactive fallout from bombs that exploded near the ground and remained lethal to humans for days or even weeks afterward. Uh, and didn't that opportunity present itself unexpectedly with the test of H-bomb Bravo in March of 1954? That's uh, the sort of main thesis uh, of the book, which is we have been trying for years after the bombs were discovered, how to figure out uh, what low-level radiation that would come from fallout would do to human beings. And the Bravo bomb, which was uh, tested in, in 1954, gave us, I hate to say, the opportunity uh, and by the way, it's not just the Marshallese. There were uh, sailors on a boat called the Lucky Dragon uh, that also got a dose of fallout the Japanese from the Brazil bomb. That was a Japanese trawler, right? Right. Japanese fishing boat that was 90 miles uh, away from the detonation. And they too uh, faced radioactive fallout and they too showed all the signs when they returned to Japan and have been followed uh, health-wise since. And several of them have died from uh, the fallout. I mean, and, and died, we know, because they had been affected by the radiation. Right. Now, didn't Bravo's designers expect it to have a yield of six megatons, which is the equivalent of six million tons of TNT, and produce a cigar-shaped fallout cloud that would extend 15 miles downwind? Uh, but, and it turned out that they were wrong. Totally wrong. The yield was almost three times that size, 15 megatons, and the fallout, again, because of the winds they didn't understand. There was a huge lack of knowledge about fallout when this test took place. And uh, we've been learning things ever since. Well, the highly radioactive debris condensed and began raining down as white ash over 2,800 square miles of the Pacific Ocean a few hours later. Right. There was and also a, it had a huge fireball that vaporized some 300 million tons of water, mud, sand, and coral. Uh, all went up into the stratosphere? Not all of it, but there's the, the famous mushroom cloud. But this was the biggest we'd ever seen. And that was the biggest bomb we ever blew up. Um, the Russians blew up a 55 0 megaton bomb and we don't have the details of what happened after that in Russia. There's no as, I, as far as I know no equivalent study was ever done of the fallout from that weapon. Do we know much about the, the Soviet tests? We know the sizes of them um, but 
as I write in the book, there was no um, examination in any detail of even the Bravo test. No investigation of why it was three times greater, although the scientists know. But um, the only sort of constant information we have is that beginning the year after the test, the exposed Marshallese have been examined almost every year. Examinations that still continue. Um, Does it get passed down from generation to generation? Well, that's uh, what the finding is, that the radioactive results in an individual do not pass from generation to generation. Um, although the Marshallese disagree with it, their own sort of uh, investi- uh, epidemiologists they hired to track that possibility uh, found the same results that it didn't pass from one generation to another, and they fired that person. But uh, the U.S. scientist review finds that it it didn't pass from generation to generation. Where did the Soviet Union do its tests? Uh, They had a test area out in the uh, sort of central part of Siberia. Well, Russia has the largest landmass of any country on Earth, and it has plenty of areas, I guess, that are totally desolate. So, uh, one of a lake that's in adjacent to their test area has been found to have a lot of radioactivity uh, in it. Does uh, it stay in the water for a very long time? It, it, there's a, a part of the sort of studies that are going on. Uh, one of the atolls we use, like Bikini, is called Enoetok. And uh, we spent close to uh, $450 million over three or four years using a thousand people to clean up an area that's about two acres in size in Enoetok. We then took a lot of the radioactive uh, soil, coral, and even materials that uh, trucks and and metal uh, that we found radioactive and buried them in a cavity of one of the test areas, covered it over with an 18 inch thick cement dome. Uh, and now people are concerned that that dome is leaking and the radioactivity in that burial zone uh, may affect the lagoon that's adjacent to it. And the Livermore laboratories are studying it every year uh, to see how radioactive material have what's called a half-life. They lose a certain amount of radiation over uh, a number of years. So plutonium, the half-life is Something like eighty years, uh, so we but still it's have a, a long-lasting problem. We still have quite a while to go. Um, how far away have fish that have been affected by the radioactivity been found? They did the the Japanese did a survey 
that we had people uh, on the ship that did a survey somewhere around four or five years after Bravo. Um, and they they tracked how far and it dissipates in in the water in a distance. Um, how many miles? Uh, I really don't know. I never read the final report. Um, but at Rongelap, the lagoon there, uh, they found that they have something called a coconut crab, very much like a lobster. It's a delicacy. And it, it eats uh, from, lives on the bottom of the lagoon and eats from uh, fish and not fish, eats uh, vegetation at the bottom of the lagoon. And they found that the coconut crab uh, retained radioactivity uh, to some degree to this day from the 1954 test. Wow. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Walter Pincus, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's written a book called Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders published by Diversion Books. Where do the names come from? Abel and Baker, for example. Those are kind of traditional army signals, A, B, for mm -hmm. first, second. There was supposed to be a third test. It was naturally called Charlie. Um, it, it They called Charlie off because they were so undone by the fallout problem that emerged from Baker. Now, Baker was de detonated directly underneath the ships in the lagoon and created what was described as a Niagara Falls in reverse. It, it lifted the ships into a kind of a, a watery mushroom cloud before it dumped them? A, a destroyer was literally picked up and was stand. There are pictures of it standing vertically over the lagoon, inside this kind of uh, mushroom, watery sort of eruption, uh, and then fell back down and eventually sunk. Now. You tell stories of people who are affected. We mentioned the 23 crewmen of the Japanese fishing trawler. What about John and Jane? What is his story? John, John and Jane was, in effect, the mayor of this atoll called Rongelap. Um, John had a wife and uh, three boys. And uh, he was became the spokesman for the group uh, that was exposed and tried to keep them together and tried to help them. However, uh, his whole family was was undone by the episode. He himself uh, eventually, died of cancer. Uh, his wife died of cancer. Their youngest son, who was a year old at the time of the fallout, and as it came down for five hours, uh, he actually played in it, a name called Lekoge, uh, L-E-K-O-J. And Lekoge, uh, what happened is beginning nine years after the exposure, um, nodules started appearing on the thyroids of 
mostly younger people. And it turns out radioactive iodine is one of the radioactive elements. It came in the fallout. And uh, iodine is drawn to your thyroid. And since children have smaller ones, the exposure of them to the radioactivity had a greater effect. So that of 21 children who were under 19 uh, exposed uh, in the Rongelap fallout, 18 of them had had their thyroids removed where they would have gotten thyroid cancer. Lacoge was one of those and had his removed at 16. But at 19, he turned up with a, a devastating kind of leukemia. Uh, they brought him to uh, the National Institutes of Health here outside Washington uh, to try to uh, take care of him. Uh, but he eventually died and is, is um, probably the saddest of the victims um, of this event. And again, in one of these strange parts of nature uh, or stories, when he went to NIH, he was put in the same room uh, with Stuart Alsop, who is the, at the time was a columnist, mm -hmm. uh, a well-known national columnist. And Stuart had a column in Newsweek and, and wrote about Lacoche because Stuart and his brother Joe Alsop, at the time of the Bravo test, one, were among the few journalists who understood the threat of both a weapon in the megaton range and also the danger from fallout. Well, weren't, weren't the dangers kind of uh, downplayed by government officials? We're talking about tests that ran, that ran from 1946 to 1958, so both Democratic and Republican administrations. We have about a minute left uh, and I wanted you to also address the fact that you said that you, you wrote this book due to an obsession during your over 50 years of covering national security issues. So can you compress all of that into two minutes? It's uh, very hard to. It, um, the Bravo test fallout was originally denied by the Eisenhower administration. Uh, there was a cover-up, and it only became public when the Japanese Lucky Dragon came to port in Japan and stories of the fallout arose. And they finally had to confess to it, although the, even then they low-played it. Um, I, I, as I said earlier, I... I was affected by, in my younger days, by watching uh, the videos and the film of atmospheric tests before they went underground. And because everybody watched them, everybody worried about what would happen. Once nuclear testing went underground, instead of being front page stories for a week, there were three paragraphs in the back of newspapers. And so suddenly people forgot what a weapon could do and it became a numbers game. Well, I How many to, do we have? I have how to, many do they have? I have to thank you for reminding us of how uh, awful all of this was. The book is Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders by Walter Pincus and published by Diversion Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great honor well, talking to you. Thank you for having me. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given them the number 2, WBAI.org. Please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Blown to Hell, America's Deadly Betrayal of the Marshall Islanders by Walter Pincus. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection, and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a WBAI member for a buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Let It Locate at Large, why not let us know you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when one of our regular guests, industrial hygienist Monona Russell, will return. And we'll see you then.